Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest today is Alain Gaitanefo, CEO of Omega Schools. Omega is a network of 35 low-cost, pay-as-you-go private schools in Ghana, serving about 8,500 students. It was started in 2009 by James Tooley, the vice chancellor of the University of Buckinghamshire and an ardent supporter of low-fee private schools, and Ken Donko, a local entrepreneur. From two schools in 2009, Omega grew to 35 schools and 20,000 students in 2012. Soon after, Pearson joined in as an investor and Tooley predicted to The Guardian, Omega would grow to 100 schools with 50,000 students in 2015. The chain quickly hit some speed bumps. There was a falling out between the investors and Donko, who subsequently left Omega. In 2014, Alain was brought in as an interim CEO, which quickly became a permanent job as he dug in to turning around the business. An engineer by training, Alain has spent almost 20 years in healthcare, building, turning around, and making profitable hospitals and medical facilities all over the world, from Canada and Chile to Venezuela, Sao Paulo, and finally, Accra. He describes himself as Mr. Fix Anything, and with Omega, he was plenty busy even before COVID struck, which hit the low-fee private school sector particularly hard. We ceased to see an inflow of income immediately because it's a daily model. We don't have the reserve or we've not collected school fees in advance. We ceased having inflows of revenues. Therefore, it was quite a challenging time, but we've operated Omega as almost a very close family. We were very supportive to our staff and they returned the courtesy at that time. Many of them stayed with the company, even if they were not getting any salary. Last year, Rising Academies bought Omega. Rising operates low-cost private schools in Sierra Leone and now Ghana, but also works via public-private partnerships in Liberia and Sierra Leone. During COVID, Rising created something called Rising on Air, a free 20-week program of radio lessons to keep children learning, which has been adapted and used by 35 partners in 25 countries. Alain and I talk about West Africa, COVID, challenges with the low-fee private school model, and how Omega managed to increase its enrollment after the pandemic. I asked Alain why he stays in education when he could clearly be making so much more money in healthcare, where he worked for decades. His answer, I suspect, might surprise you. This week's episode is sponsored by Smart Technologies. We will hear a little bit more from them later. Alain, we meet at last. You are a very busy man. So thank you for taking time to speak with us today. Thank you, Jenny. Always a pleasure. You told me when you were asked to come to Accra for another project, not for Omega, in 2010, you had not been in West Africa since you left in the 80s. What were your impressions? What had changed and what hadn't? In fact, I was always reluctant to consider anything that was called going back. But it was a bit unjust because I had kept those images and experiences from the 80s and what we see on the TV. And that was my image as well of Africa. But because those who were seeking my services insisted, I gave it a try and I was quite amazed when I landed in Accra, Ghana. It was different than the picture I had kept from the mid-80s, 85, 86. Everything seems to be organized, at least in the main arteries and the main places you could see. And there was some kind of order and development. 
added to the news we were getting from the stability, political stability in Ghana. I was able to experience it. I saw a couple of signs of significant improvement, and I was quite taken away. It was not difficult after that to make a decision. I'm going to fast forward a little bit and get to 2014 when you decide to join Omega. Omega has 19 schools in the Kosoa area. It's about 30 kilometers outside of Accra. And according to a 2015 report, 83% of parents have one child in private schools in this area. That compares to about 20% in Africa and more than 30% in Ghana. Why are so many kids in private schools in Kosoa and in Ghana? When I joined, I had absolutely no idea about education, let to speak about low-cost private education. Of course, read a bit and chatted with James Tooley, who is one of the pioneers here. Kasua also was not an area I was familiar with. I spent a couple of years in Accra, but they never ventured truly unless I was passing going to Cape Coast. But it is a very significantly important peri-urban community. In 2010, they were boosting close to 70,000 inhabitants. And in 2019, a UNDP report indicated over 400,000 inhabitants in Kaswa. You can see the fast pace at which that community is developing, one of the fastest growing in Ghana. Because they grew so fast, I don't think the government anticipated all of that to some point. And they ended up having less of the public services they needed. And of course, a very dynamic, vibrant, they had to put everything on their own, at least in the first place. It's recently that the government has built a senior high school in that particular district and putting much more service, towering roads and all the rest, hospitals, and to mention few. That's the reason why most parents they had to look for space for their wards in private schools, hospitals, and the rest. Elsewhere, uh, in the rest of Ghana, it's a bit different. You know, distance, government, the oversight kicks in as well. But in Kaswa, it's really the fast-paced development that has boosted the development of private services. A bit informal sometimes, but at least better than nothing. So there's a bit of an ideological controversy over low-fee private schools, but the truth is a huge number of kids are educated in the sector. It's not going away. The results are a bit mixed as to whether they deliver significantly better academic results when controlled for family conditions. But I'm curious, when you really step back, what do you think in West Africa, in in Ghana specifically, what is driving the demand for these schools, even when there is a public alternative? That's a very challenging question, and is the one we are all those involved in this space and those who from distance try to support. We are all trying to solve. The first thing we must see is the needs are great, meaning the population is growing, things are not always organically well taught and developed. And also government in developing countries, they have so much needs, so many to address and so little resource to face them all as it is expected. That's the reason why the private sector is absolutely essential in trying actually to fill the gap. That's why personally, I always encourage the government to work and stretch hands and join forces with the private sector, but there are other controversies coming from there. 
Therefore, seeing all these needs, having government with limited resources, and you know, the parents trying to find and build a future for their wards, they have to try to choose the best option available to them. They have the public sector and they have the private, plus others like some of the faith-based or other non-government sector actors. And sometimes, even when the government is putting the service together, is not as sustainable, meaning the pay is not satisfactory. And when it's satisfactory, it doesn't come on time. The oversight is not always sustained, meaning teachers, they come to school and sometimes they get discouraged. They come only for two hours, then they go to do their own business. The government provide all the resources and in a few months, nobody accounts for them. They build nice schools and in a matter of a year or two, no maintenance has been carried out or not to the expected level and everything is falling apart. Those are the symptoms and routinely it's been observed, which makes the public sector a bit inefficient and to some parents unsatisfactory, leading them to move and consider the private sector, where you see even with the limited resource, a little bit more accountability because again, private sector, you are accountable to your customers. Therefore, they make sure teachers are on task, even if, you know, it's a bit improvised, depending on which level, some do better than others, some use more advanced and innovative strategies, other no, they just go to traditional, putting a teacher in the classroom, nothing else. And, but parents feel it's a bit more consistent and it gives better hopes that they will achieve higher results, which has been proven in majority. If you look at the private sector, some of them are selective schools, others no, and they make sure they get to better academic performance because that's actually the marketing tool for the future. The main criticism, it seems to me, that's lobbed at low-cost private schools is that they use less qualified teachers and actually pay less than the state sector. Is that a fair criticism? No, I don't think it is fair. It could be, in some cases, something that we all observe. But I think we have to go beyond the cliché and understand what is behind, what is driving, and how those actors are mitigating those challenges. It is absolutely true that as a private institution, you have to make sure you cover your costs. Therefore, you're not going to engage into lengthy conversation, hiring people because only of their qualifications, even if they don't perform and they spend only two hours in classroom. Therefore, you try to mitigate between what you can afford and the quality you need to deliver. Many of the private sectors, they go beyond just hiring the teacher. They provide continuous professional development, which you will sometimes not see in the public sector. And they ensure that the teachers are growing from the moment they are hired on qualified, et cetera, to at least, even if they are not qualified and certified, but at least trained teachers, able to perform and deliver results. And the result is making students learn at the end of the day and satisfy the requirement of any national examination because they will be compared to other students from other schools, well-endowed or not. So let's dig into the Omega model. School costs about, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, 75 cents a day. So explain to us what market you're targeting. You know, sort of low income, middle income, who are you targeting? (laughs) That's an excellent question because 
it is quite on my desk at the moment if we can continue to compete with the government sector because we are indeed in the bottom quintile. We deal with the bottom of the pyramid. Uh, we operate most of our schools in underprivileged communities. And that was the vision of the founders. They had a great vision, but something that is not easy to articulate in a sustainable manner. I will just give you one reference and you will see. When the whole venture started, one CD was equivalent to one US dollar. Therefore, they said, we're going to charge one dollar. But in fact, on the ground, the population, they don't handle the dollar. Therefore, it was the equivalent, one CD. Few years down the road, the devaluation has kicked in. Now, one dollar is equivalent to five CD. But go and explain that to the parents because they still call the Omega School Omega One CD because that's what they learned from the beginning and that's what they expected will remain. It has been difficult, but it's continuously happening that we have to tell them, listen, there's been a devaluation, there is inflation, we need to at least compensate for the inflation. But again, as a vision, it was excellent, but now the operationalization of that vision has been the challenge between growing pains and uh, assessing again the segment that was initially targeted uh, making some significant economies of scales and leveraging technology. That's what we do on a daily basis to make sure we remain sustainable because so far I'm yet to think we could be profitable. I know nobody in that space who is profitable, but sustainable is a key. That has been the first priority from the founders. So what I'm hearing you say is that you're really confronting this question of whether this can be a long-term commercially profitable enterprise if you choose to look at the most disadvantaged students. Exactly. And we are considering moving a little bit up in the socioeconomic scale so that we don't deal only with the bottom of the pyramid, but also the layer that is above the bottom, closer to the middle class. But if you could move some of your schools up to that higher price point, will you remain committed to the bottom or does it actually mean you just can't make it work and you have to sort of move the whole model up? We're moving some of them. And eventually for the expansion, we'll consider those that will satisfy a little bit closer to the middle class. But we remain committed for now, as long as we can, to those at the bottom of the those who are struggling and they have only Omega as a hope. You have a pay-as-you-go model, which I think any leader would see and say that seems quite challenging. Why is that the model? Why is that useful? It was based on some studies done at the time this venture started. They had surveyed the communities and gathered the sentiment and the expectations, and the needs were quite clear. They couldn't face all those upfront costs. They couldn't be surprised by the extra fees, like the extra charges. They needed something that was quite bundled and affordable. And they packaged that and came up with this proposal. There was a misunderstanding because what should have been said was not pay as you go, because parents understood it means if I don't use the service, I don't need to pay. Meanwhile, it was rather some kind of financing with installment instead of having to pay the upfront. You divide it by the number of school days and you are liable for each installment. Therefore, there were some discrepancies between the management and the parents and all those points always surfacing at the PTA meetings. And we had, at the time I joined, we had made the commitment that we wanted to ease 
that confrontation and we made it rather clear. If you don't come to school, you don't have to pay. A true pay as you go. I'm going to ask this question pre-COVID because obviously COVID has changed things. How much did attendance fluctuate on a day-to-day basis? I was quite surprised because I monitored during my first days how the enrollment was and the attendance and all this. That was still in the process of analyzing in order to make the determination about that particular conflict of appreciation. And I quickly realized it was a steady 85%, around 80-85% attendance. When I was thinking it should be close to 100, because if someone stopped coming or is absent so often, it drops out. But at one point, I realized it was not going to 100%. And I realized that parents were actually using absenteeism to manage their budget. It means a parent who has two, three kids, sometimes five and even seven, he will decide who goes to school. That's why we were seeing rather the same attendance rate because today five selected go and the next day it's another set of five, a different combination. And that's why you see that attendance rate remain about the same level. Therefore, Out of that particular observation, we realized that it was also eventually the source of some of our other observations, which is inconsistent performance in the academics. Because if you are not attending all school days, something else must be done. And as a result, we had to build a significant number of remedial activities in the curriculum. Meaning after every four weeks, we have one week of catch up meaning those who have been absent, they have the opportunity to get to the same pace. And those who have been in school, it's just an opportunity to revise more. And we do that not only for the content, but also for the assessment. And we do some Saturday remedial classes. And even when parents are in agreement, some morning classes. Okay, now we're gonna hear more from our sponsor, Jonathan Moore, engagement manager responsible for strategic alliances at Smart Technologies. You might know SMART as the maker of whiteboards, but Jonathan's here to tell us about some of the other SMART things SMART is doing, including a self-assessment tool. Jonathan, tell me what a SMART EdTech self-assessment tool can do. Using the assessment tool can help education institutions identify how to get the most from their EdTech and hopefully improve outcomes for their learners. Why should schools do one? Smart EdTech self-assessment tool is free and can help leaders address issues to uncovering perhaps why EdTech isn't having the desired effect to improve outcomes. It provides a framework to reflect and unite people and provides an area to focus. And what are the five main pillars that you are looking at? The five main pillars are leadership, professional development, implementation, infrastructure, and recently added, obviously, blended and hybrid learning. Is this just for US schools? It's used internationally. In fact, it's been used in Australia, Spain, UK, Middle East. It's actually been used by government in Europe to identify key areas of focus. Who takes part in the EdTech self-assessment? Is it just the leader? The leader would reflect and include the key stakeholders that are responsible for the areas of those sort of five pillars. So I think the strength is the fact of taking on board everyone's views and opinions and formulating that plan to help people move forward. 
Give me a sense as to how you came up with some of the questions that the assessment addresses. We've taken the assessment tool and we've linked it to research. And essentially, it's a synthesis of other well-known and trusted organisations such as OECD, NACE, UNESCO and CASEL. Do you have any evidence that this works? It's the responses of thousands of education institutions and able to identify a key correlation between those schools that have scored highly on the self-review and have improved outcomes. Results show that schools where technology capability uh, has been rated as high also report the best teaching and learning. And results, in fact, educators report highest level of capabilities with 10 times more likely to observe high outcomes. If as a school we do an assessment, how do we get to see the results? It's easily provided either individually as a school or aggregated organisational report can be obtained. The senior leadership then have simple identify areas of focus designed in a matrix. Jonathan Moore, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jenny. For more information, go to smarttech.com forward slash profile. Again, that's smarttech.com forward slash profile. So what happened to attendance after COVID? Because there really was a tremendous fear that the low cost private sector would really get hammered by this remote schooling experience. Actually, we were not so involved in making the decision because the government stepped in quite quickly and they declared uh, school closure. Therefore, we had no other option than moving on the remote space, remote learning space. We use WhatsApp and other strategies, and there were also a couple of programs put up by the government and other uh, allies. But mainly it was out of school. Then the government, after three months of that regimen, which was quite challenging uh, for everybody, families, parents, they couldn't go to work, etc. But the same thing happened everywhere across the world. They opened the schools, but only for the last level, those who were writing the national exam. Therefore, out of 13 classrooms, on average, we had to operate only one. And that lasted for about six, seven months before they finally authorized all schools to reopen in January 2021. If you have a pay-as-you-go model, did 80 to 85 percent of people keep paying for that remote schooling or did the government subsidize you? We wish that had happened, but in fact, we ceased to see an inflow of income immediately because it's a daily model. We don't have the reserve or we've not collected school fees in advance. We cease having inflows of revenues. Therefore, it was quite a challenging time, but we've operated Omega as almost a very close family. We were very supportive to our staff and uh, they extended or returned the courtesy at that time. Many of them stayed with the company, even if they were not getting any salary. They supported us with the remote learning. And when we were able to reopen, at least for that one level, the candidate to the national exam, some of them came back. And the others, while staying at home, remained faithful. We even went to the extent At that time, we had joined forces with Rising Academy Network, and we were able to extend a little bit token, you know, a little bit of support through a token, which is a fraction of what they used to earn before, but at least to sustain themselves during that challenging moment. And so when you did open schools, what percentage of your families came back? Did you get your kids back? I'm still trying to figure out because we got 
a little bit more than before, but it's as a result of a combination of activities. Some because, you know, we had very loyal parents and they sticked with us, came back. Some because we had also some aggressive community outreach activities. Remember, during the pandemic, we extended support communities, provided remote learning at no cost just with the support of our teachers. Therefore, some of them realized we were committed to them and they returned. And even when we went for community outreach, we were able to convince other parents and guardians to consider Omega as an option. And also at the last minute, we realized when school reopening was declared, many schools, many other local private schools couldn't reopen. And we ended up absorbing some of their past students. That's what I'm still trying to figure out in terms of proportions. And what are you doing now to facilitate catch-up for the learning loss that has taken place? No, but we, we are satisfied with what we've used to do in the past. We continue our remedial programs. I was actually this morning before the call reviewing the reports from the Saturday remedial classes just to see how strong and very effective it continues to be. And have, we have no reason to doubt. Of course, if we can do more, we will. And currently, we have a couple of technological-driven features that we're developing, particularly a lab within Rising using, we, we call it Rory. It's actually a, a, an online tutorial. We have other features that help students, not only during the class, which is possible, but also after school. So Rory is an online tutorial? Is that live video lessons? Is that a chatbot? What exactly is that? It's a chat box that uses artificial intelligence to try to engage the student. And they're using very cheap, to say it one way, uh, phones, not smartphones, phones, to connect to the robot. Do you have a sense as to whether Rory works? We are currently testing it. I can't reveal what we've found so far because it's still on the development but it's coming soon and it's going to be something that parents will certainly appreciate. We've tested it with some parents already and it's going to be a relief in terms of offering tutoring and relieving parents who are a bit tied up and committed to their work and not able to provide enough support to their wards. How are you thinking about student well-being? Are there specific efforts that you all are making to make sure kids are okay? It's been a pretty traumatic past year and a half. One major and high priority initiative was to reinforce our child safeguarding, not only the policies, but all activities around child safeguarding. The second has been strengthening and improving all the services we provide, and one major is feeding, and others are all these uniforms and collaterals, because our model is an all-inclusive model, because sometimes some parents are able to afford, but others no. And you don't want the kid uh, sitting in the classroom and not able to have his lunch. Therefore, all those are meant to help students thrive, and at the end of the day, learn because they're able to concentrate in the classroom and eventually they learn. You were brought in in 2014 to be an interim CEO. You had to manage an organization where the local co-founder was leaving. Investors were a bit constrained as to what they could do. There were some very high level changes in staff. 
What did you learn from that experience about managing schools in a crisis versus managing corporations in a crisis, which you had done for many, many years in the healthcare sector? You had managed plenty of crises, but this was a very particular kind. What did you learn? A lot, a lot, because as you know, in the healthcare sector, you work in a very comfortable environment. There are enough resources. You interact with physicians, the best trained people you find in the society, and many more. When you get to a low-cost private school or system or network, things are difficult. I had to adjust quite fast. But I think I've built that capacity. I was born in Cameroon, therefore I understand how you have to adapt quite radically. I've lived in similar communities before, therefore I understand. I've been in Canada, been in Latin America, therefore I have that particular capacity to adapt. That was the first key element that helped in succeeding in that mandate. The second was as an engineer, when you are confronted with a very big challenging problem that actually everybody runs away, you have to take a step back and see how you can break that unsurmountable challenge into smaller pieces you can easily chew. And lastly, you can't do it alone. You have to try to make alliances, motivate your staff, get on the ground, show role model, all of that. And that's what helped us succeed from those moments. Down the line, you have to face more difficult problems, which are the same we face in a normal corporate environment. Do you cut cost? And particularly starting with the payroll. But you know, in education, you need a lot of people to get things done, teachers in particular. Therefore, it wasn't a trivial option, but you have to find ways to manage that and mitigate the, the skyrocketed trend towards salary increase. Then you have to find also rooms and opportunities for saving. Therefore, most of the thing we did going online, sending digital lesson plans to teachers and uh, even taking the, the assessment instead of using the scan sheet system, we just decided to use a software and the teachers were inputting, going to digital payment, all of that was just to try to rationalize and bring enough cost efficiency to remain sustainable, meaning breaking even at least at school level. And you're able to do that now. Are you able to break even? Yes. And we're pursuing the journey to break even at the net level, net result. What is the best and worst part of managing teachers? Again, you've you've worked in a completely different sector, and I'd love to get your honest take on uh, the joys and travails of teachers. I am a teacher myself, therefore I would say they are the key, the key pillar you rely on for your customer to remain loyal to you. A teacher for a parent represents everything. They don't, they don't know the system behind. They trust the teachers so much. And everything the teacher says or their word report from what experience or interaction he has with the teacher is paramount, is everything, and they act on that. Therefore, we had to make sure the teachers not only were prepared, but understand what we were trying to achieve and motivate them the most we could. It's not always easy because initially, and even today, we still face a high turnover of teachers. Reason why we are trying to develop some incentives, some programs that make them, including develop themselves professionally and earn eventually a diploma or certificate 
because that's what they do most of the time. They want to further their own education and they leave the teaching vocation aside to do that. And so what would you say the biggest challenge of your job every day is? The human relation, making sure parents understand what we do and they value what we do is to make sure teachers are also quite clear as to what we're trying to achieve. And they buy that and they actually champion it. It's to make sure students understand we are a key factor in helping them build a future and a good one. And more than everything, it's not only helping the community thrive, but making sure the government understands, supports that, and make it even more successful by easing a bit the burden, fiscal, legal, and everything else. But that is not a game won already. It's a quite a long road. And what do you mean by that? What would you like to see the government do? Are you saying specifically invest more in education or teacher requirements? What would be a few things you might ask them to do if perhaps they were sitting next to you at a dinner party? First, on teachers, government should provide teachers. They should train more teachers because we are supplementing their role. They should help with the teachers' training, hiring, certification, rather than making it a burden. We should have actually civil servants, meaning teachers trained and even paid by the government in our schools. That's one thing I would like them to consider. The fiscal environment is so burdening because even coming out of the pandemic, it seems nobody remembers the challenges we went through. Government fee for registration has gone from 200 CD to 800. There've been no relief provided to many of the, I would say, entrepreneurs or small size companies. Some of them so small that we will never qualify. Therefore, it's quite of a challenging environment if the government doesn't work hand in hand with those who are trying to assist in this space with all the objectives, SDG4 and any other that we need to achieve as a collectivity. That's what I meant by saying the government should be a bit more supportive. If you look at the tax regimen, there is no consideration for the educational institution, no specific consideration. So you should get tax breaks. Absolutely, like they do for these people growing exportable goods and they should be. You could be making a lot more money in the corporate sector than, than I assume you're making in the educational sector. So why are you still doing this? My wife asks me that question almost every day. <laughs> and my mom is worse because she's asking me, what am I doing? But because, and I will start with my mom, she's very into church, therefore she will understand that. Once I told her, I was doing the work of God. She didn't get what I was saying. Therefore, she came to visit me. I took her to one of the schools. When she saw the impact we're having, she said, now I understand. The biggest challenge is with my wife because I have quite a high cost of opportunity. I could be doing something else and earning much more. But the reality is we must have a purpose in life. And when I joined the healthcare, it was exactly for that. I was an engineer in electronics and telecommunication and barely moved to work for Teleglobe between Canada and Germany. But one of my good boss, good friend too, 
He told me you will be wasting such an, exper an expertise you've built. I sat home, I reconsidered and decided to give it a shot. Therefore, I went to Venezuela, other Latin America, Ghana now. And I was quite happy with the contribution I was making. I always took the work in healthcare as fighting for a cause. And you see actually the impact of that. You see people getting up after some illness. I spent some time in the cancer oncology sector too. Even worse, you see how families are destroyed by just one bad diagnostic. And when I was called to come to the education, at first I was reluctant because I knew nothing about education except, you know, helping young kids as a student at university. But I said, it's almost similar. And that's what I've realized through the years I've spent at Omega. It's a cause you're fighting for. And this one is even worth fighting for. And a final question, very tied to that, is what role do you see education playing you're in West Africa, but I'm going to ask the meta question in Africa's broader development. That's a very good philosophical, but also something our government should consider. At our levels, you know, individuals, I've always said to parents at PTA meetings and others, the best gift you can give your child is to educate him. That's what we receive from our parents. My parents didn't you know, we didn't inherit anything, but they send us to the best school. We are, my four siblings and myself, professionals, and we are autonomous on our own and actually helping others. And it is the same message, the best gift. But governments sometimes do not take that seriously enough. And I doesn't want to mischaracterize it, but when you see people sending their kids abroad, meanwhile, they're building some schools, where they're supposed to be responsible. It sends, sends the wrong message because you should, as much as you send your kids to the best schools, you should also care for those who are left behind. And that's my call for everybody involved in this space. It is the most vital. You can build a society with uneducated people or else you wouldn't have anybody to work in the factories and all the industries we're trying to build, neither. And worse, living in that society will be quite difficult because people will be eager, vindicative, envious, and that's how you build an unsafe environment for people to live in. All right, now we've got three really easy questions, or so I hope. What is your favorite book about learning? I've read uh, James Toulet's book, The Beautiful Tree. I will recommend that, uh, my friend James. I will certainly recommend that if you want to understand what we're trying to do. And what is your favorite book that has nothing to do with learning? It's a publication. I can share the link with you. It is about agriculture. How do you feed the millions of people that are keep accumulating on this earth? I still feel it is one of the biggest challenges. Perfect. We'll share it with our listeners. And finally... I doubt you have time to binge watch anything, but I'm going to ask anyways, what are you binge watching on television? On television, I watch exclusively sport. And my favorite, and my heart is bleeding at the moment because I have high hopes for this weekend, is the Formula One. I won't say much, but you can guess the rest. 
Well, I've as an England fan, I can certainly relate to a bleeding heart at this particular moment. <laughs> so uh, I wish you the best and I very much appreciate your time. So good luck and thank you. Thank you, Jenny. For a long time, there's been a heated ideological debate about whether the private sector should be educating poor kids and trying to get a return doing it. But the truth is low cost private schools are here to stay. In low and middle income countries, families spent $104 billion on education in 2018-19, or 30 to 40% of total education spending according to the World Bank. That compares to 16% that households spent in high income countries. It's high time we get beyond the ideological conversation about who should deliver that, the government or the private sector, and figure out how we get governments to improve quality, oversight, and innovation in government schools while also creating ample oversight of the low-cost private school model. In 2017, I spent a few months reporting on Bridge International Academies, a highly controversial tech startup that aims to educate 25 million children in some of the poorest parts of the world by 2025, while delivering generous returns to investors, including Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, as well as Amidiar. The story took me to Liberia to see the government's public-private partnership. At the time, Bridge had 100,000 students. Break-even, the founder told me, was 500,000. A key question facing Bridge, and really, all low-cost private school providers is how to make money educating some of the most marginalized kids in the world. Alain was forthright in admitting this may not be possible, at least if the target student is one at the bottom of the income pyramid. Omega, he says, is breaking even, but to stay committed to the most marginalized kids and make money for investors is a feat he, and maybe others, aren't going to crack. Omega is considering moving upstream to help subsidize the work it will continue to do with its lower-income families. But our conversation made clear that even if Omega is just breaking even, it delivers value to families. When Ghana's government closed schools, Omega's teachers offered to deliver remote schooling for free. We're a family, he said at one point. Plenty of families would not step up in that way. When kids came back to school, Omega found itself not only with the families it had taken care of, but others who saw that it had stepped up when other low-cost private schools shut down. To me, the big takeaway is not that huge returns aren't coming down the pike, I suspected that back in 2017, but that applying some of the core tenets of business, cost efficiency, intensive professional development, and customer service, to name three, can actually play a role in education, especially when it comes with and allows deep commitment to listening to the communities he's working with and working with them to build the schools they want and deserve. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.